Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Christian Sager. And I am Joe McCormick. And today we are going to be doing one of our annual summer reading episodes. Yeah, this is just um, kind of a casual uh, get-together here where we just come into the studio, bring a few re- uh, listening recommendations for our listeners, uh, share some things that we've been reading, uh, hope to read in the future, uh, etc. Yeah, a lot of listeners uh, write into us both on social media and through email to recommend books and uh, movies and all kinds of things to us, and I feel like this is our chance to to give back. Although, I mean, probably every given episode we drop some yeah some variety of uh, things that we've been reading or movies we've been watching or TV or something like that. But this is all about hey, it's summertime, right? Let's go to the beach and read some books. Why is that a thing people do at the beach? Because you well, in my experience, it's because you you break free from your normal patterns. Um, and you suddenly find yourself creating all this new time and a new space. Craving John Grisham. No, no. I mean, I thought some people like a, to go with the more mainstream books that are available in the beach house. But, uh-huh. um, but no, I've always found it a good, a good excuse to just really dive into something, uh, you know, entertaining or, or, or really heady. Yeah. Robert, lo- what, what was that? Uh, you, you went to the beach, I think within the past couple of years and uploaded to the internet some pictures of the oh, library yes. on the shelf at the beach house where they had a, they had a book about a werewolf spy. I yes. Think. Um, was it, was it, wasn't it Robert McCammon, uh, McCammon, is that his name? I don't know. Um, Gosh, I can't wish we remember who, which author that was. Yeah, but I was surprised to find some cool genre stuff because generally you just find Tom Clancy, John Grisham, uh, some various, uh, you know, mild romance novels. Yeah. It's uh, always the Tom Clancy, the kind yeah. of people who own beach houses. They like to know how nuclear submarines work. <laughs> well, I hope that the werewolf spy had some love in his life. Or maybe I, oh, I have, I'm pretty sure he spy. did. Pretty yeah. sure he did. Good. Yeah. Good. Well, that's a good segue into my first book, uh, which is a, a document that looks at the entire history of supernatural horror and fiction. Whoa. Yeah, so this is my nonfiction pick this this year, guys, and it is by a past uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind guest, Mr. S.T. Joshi. Uh, He was on a previous episode that Robert and Julie did about H.P. Lovecraft and the science behind his works, and I believe you interviewed him, right? Yeah, yeah, I chatted with him uh, on the phone, and uh, we uh, used the interview on the episode. So those of you who are unfamiliar with him, maybe go back and listen to that episode, but I'll give you a little primer here. S.T. Joshi, he's a, a literary critic and an academic. He's primarily known for very close examinations of weird fiction. So H.P. Lovecraft and all the writers that preceded him, like Algernon Blackwood, M.R. James, Ar- Arthur Macon, and... Those who have followed him, too, like Ramsey Campbell, Ray Bradbury, Clark Ashton Smith. He's written tomes on all of these people. Uh, and he has, I guess, what can be described as an acerbic style of writing about the genre. He's a little, he's a little pointed in some of his criticisms. Mm-hmm. I feel like he's kind of a, a horror fiction, horror literature mintat. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, uh, are his lips stained purple? Yes. <laughs> That's how, how you know. 
Ellen Datlow is, um, is a really prominent editor in the horror field. She edits the uh, best uh, horror of the year books that come out at the end of every year. She described S.T. Joshi as the nastiest reviewer in the field. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm giving you this warning ahead of time. This book is great, but he doesn't pull his punches. Uh, when he doesn't like something, he lets you know about it. And when he loves something, he, he celebrates it in all its glory. It's weird because I think I I don't I can't remember offhand an example of him tearing something up. Like I tend to read Joe. He does a lot of introductions oh, uh, yeah. to books yeah. and uh, and certainly puts together edits edits uh, compilations of things that he likes. <laughs> yeah. So I've certainly encountered the um, the, the the loving St. Joshi, not so much the the hammer. Wouldn't it be great to read a book though that had an introduction that ripped the very book you're reading to shreds? <laughs> <laughs> well, here's an example. I've got one for you. Uh, Publishers Weekly did a review of this book, and they said, Joshi reserves his sharpest judgments for contemporary horror writers, especially popular bestsellers, dismissing Stephen King as, quote, a schlockmeister, just the literary equivalent <laughs> of all the B-movies and comic books he digested in his youth. Oh. So so there's that. Um, this is a great book, though. Like, if you are looking to really dive into the horror genre and to find out, like, what's the best of the best... What's the history behind it? What's stuff I should go out and look for? This is it. I mean, he starts with the Greek and Latin literature that includes supernatural elements, moves up to the Gothic era, has a whole huge section on Poe, and then talks a lot about the weird horror writers at the end of the 19th century. That's just the first volume. Originally, this was published in two separate volumes. And the second volume covers the development of horror literature through the 20th century, with sections mainly on those people I just mentioned before, Machen, uh, Blackwood, Lovecraft, etc. Uh, Shirley Jackson has her own whole chapter, all the way up to Peter Straub, Stephen King, and people who are writing today, like, the, well, they're all writing today, but like Caitlin R. Kiernan, who's like a relatively recent writer comparatively mm-hmm. to the rest of this stuff. Uh, so I, I really recommend it if you're just looking to just play around and see what's out there in horror literature and what you like and what you don't like. Yeah, he's definitely one of those, those, um, those great, uh, authoritative, um, 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 experts on the field where you can always just get a few, at least a few uh, ideas of authors you need to check out and, and, uh, and try. Yeah, I'm loving it. Uh, especially the Edgar Allan Poe section has been really illuminating for me so far. Now, would you say his, uh, his survey of the field is more exclusively literary, just like looking at the authors and their works and the relationship to each other, or does he do historical and other uh, cultural contextual stuff too? Uh, no, it's primarily literary. Yeah, yeah. I don't think he... Not so much, uh, unless he's like previously written about an author. Like, so for instance, in the post section, he already had like a lot to gather from. So he could provide you with some context about like what was going on in Poe's life at the time that he wrote, I don't know, Murders in the Rue Morgue or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that provided some context, but, but not for everything. Yeah. So yeah, I, I mean, I highly recommend it. Uh, I know, uh, from talking to some of our listeners, they always like it when we bring up the weird horror literature that we've been reading and, uh, Man, this is it. This is the book. If you, you know, you don't have to read the whole thing. You can just get it, flip through it and kind of find like the area that you're looking for and, and dive in and you will come out with just a treasure trove of authors to go looking for. Then I got to ask, last time we did a summer reading episode, y'all convinced me to read The Great God Pan by Arthur Macon. Oh, yeah. Uh, who is one of the writers you mentioned that he gets into. I went and read it, loved it. It's amazing. What does he think about it? 
I haven't gotten to the section yet where he talks about Macon, but if I know Joshi, I would imagine that he thinks it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, he I probably can, I, like sets up a shrine at mm-hmm. its feet. Yeah. Well, I know it's a lot a great, of cr- a, a lot of critics film. trashed it, didn't they? Back then, yeah, yeah. I mean, 120 years ago, when, <laughs> when nobody true. knew anything. Yeah, and, no, I think, and he, certainly it's not for. Everybody, I like. I can imagine plenty of people would maybe not dig it today. Could maybe, maybe yeah. a little bit stuffy, a little bit. The prose style is, mm-hmm. yeah, is definitely of its time, and it's. Uh, how does our friend uh, E.C. Steiner refer to it? He talks about it as being like yet another one of those stories of like learned gentlemen, sort uh-huh. of, like yeah. just sitting around by a fire talking about something horrific, mm-hmm. right? But I, it's awesome. It's one of the best horror stories I think ever written. You would not comprehend my horror when. All right, Joe. What do you have? Uh, what do you have from the uh, non-fictional bucket here for us? Well, I've got I've got one fiction book and a few non-fiction books, but I'll I'll start with one that if you are a regular listener to the show, this probably is not going to come as a surprise to you because I think I've gushed about it on at least one episode before, maybe multiple episodes. But my first non-fiction pick is the invention of nature, Alexander von Humboldt's New World by Andrea Wolf, and that's a 2015 book published by Knopf. And it's about the German naturalist Alexander von Humboldt, who lived from 1769 to 1859. Uh, and this guy has a lot of things in the world named after him. There's the Humboldt Current, the Humboldt Glacier in Greenland, Humboldt Bay in California, the Humboldt Range, Humboldt Falls, Humboldt Mountains, Humboldt Penguin, Humboldt Squid, uh, tons of other animal species. He, he's all over the map in the natural world. They should all get together and fold a, form like a Humboldt super team. Right. Like the squid and the penguin. Turn into a giant creature. robot. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I, I, I think, in fact, this is my favorite. I think he's even got a sinkhole named after him. Now, nice. once you've got a sinkhole named after you, yeah. you have made it. Squad goals. <laughs> But so he traveled all over the world during his lifetime making observations of nature. He he was one of those classic uh, 19th century naturalists, kind of like Darwin, but preceding Darwin. And so his influence in his own time was pretty much incalculable. But I don't think I ever learned a single thing about this guy in school. And after reading this book, I think I'd say von Humboldt might be the most historically influential intellectual of the past millennium who is just completely forgotten by history. Why is that? I don't know. But reading Andrea Wolf's book on him is just wonderful. I, I, I absolutely loved it. So to, to give a little context about what's going on in Humboldt's lifetime, I want to read a quote from Thomas Jefferson that sort of reflects the attitude toward nature one might encounter in the, the learned gentleman, as you mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. of the, of the 19th century, turn of the 19th century. So Jefferson had put the mammoth on this chart he made of extant European mammals. And obviously some people were like, why the mammoth? And so he said, quote, it may be asked why I insert the mammoth as if he still existed. It may be asked in return why I should omit it (laughs) as if it did not exist. Such is the economy of nature that no instance can be produced of her having permitted any one race of her animals to become extinct of her having formed any link in her great works so weak as to be broken. I mean, today that's obviously extremely wrong in multiple ways, uh, but this was sort of the climate in which Humboldt's view was revolutionary. So in many ways, Humboldt is responsible for the way scientists 
came to see nature as they do today, not as a static, created order with everything in its right place and nothing really changing over the long term, but as this dynamic, changeable, massively interconnected system uh, of ecology and biological and chemical webs of relationships between all the things on Earth, the elements and its life forms. So uh, in, in Humboldt's view, habitats could be altered and destroyed. Species could go extinct and changes in one place could have far-reaching effects in others. And Humboldt began to use the analogy of the world as sort of one unified organism, whereas, you know, in an organism, if you get gangrene in one part of your body, it will affect other parts of your body. So uh, I loved this book. It's just full of really fascinating stories about Humboldt's travels around the world and his experiments. I think I used it as one of our sources in the episodes Robert and I did about the early days of electricity experiments, where uh, one of the ones I related was Humboldt's quest to collect the bodies of lightning strike victims so he could uh, examine the burns to their their body hair and see uh, exactly what that could tell us about animal electricity. Another one was Humboldt's experiments with uh, Bonpland about the electric eels mm-hmm. of South America, collecting eels by causing horses to stampede over a pond full of them. And then once he finally got some eels, uh, like touching the eels a lot. And it, it's weird, but he, he, he was a very interesting, very smart, very cool guy for his time. He was like the Ig Nobel Prize winner of, of his time. Like instead of taking bees and holding them to his body, he just touched <laughs> electric kind of but more of a more of a scientific superstar yeah yeah, he was absolutely a rock star of his time like more than stephen hawking or any celebrity Mm -hmm. scientist of today he's like dead to history now i don't know we don't talk about him in school or, or or you know i guess just in the science community in general i don't know it's it's a good question um because his his influence was absolutely huge uh a big part of the book is just showing how big his influence was. Like there are chapters focusing on contemporaries uh, of of Humboldt's, like uh, Goethe, Darwin, Thoreau, so artists, politicians, sure. other scientists, and how they all revered him and got lots of ideas from him. Uh, and so I, I really don't know exactly why it is that his legacy is mostly forgotten. Well, there's penguins and glaciers and sinkholes, at least. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you really need to push the the Humboldt uh, Renaissance here. I mean, uh, everyone got behind Tesla and pushed Tesla back to the forefront. So Uh, why not Humboldt? Yeah, I I think Humboldt's more interesting than Tesla. Whoa! Oh yeah, you heard it here first, folks. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, but anyway, this should we name a car after him? Well, if you want to find out for yourself. For yourself, you should read this book. Okay. You should. So it's really, really wonderful. It's not only a pleasure, it, it covers this massive blind spot I didn't even know I had in sort of the Western history of scientific thought. Cool. Uh, so uh, that's uh, Andrea Wolf, Alexander von Humboldt's New World. Uh, check it out. I Big, big thumbs up from me. All right. Well, um for my part, um, we, you know, we get a lot of scientific uh, books, especially the mainstream uh, uh, general scientific books uh, across our desk. Yeah. And uh, of the ones that have come out in uh, the past year, I really have to say that um, uh, Mara J. Hart's uh, Sex in the Sea, Our Intimate Connection with Sex-Changing Fish, Romantic Lobsters, Kinky Squid, and Other Salty Erotica of the Deep is probably the one... That's right at the top of my list. Yeah, that's a great book, and we talked about it in our Osadax Boneworm episode. Mm-hmm. We did talk to her with Mara, yeah. and there, and and we're planning to do another interview with her mm-hmm. later this summer. Uh, she was delightful, down to earth, and 
really is into the kinky stuff between uh, marine life. Yeah, like she does. I thought she did just a, a fabulous job. Um, not only you know in the book, but in the interview as well. I mean, yeah. just really conveying. Uh, a love for these creatures, but also a, a great willingness to in, enjoy the ri- the ridiculousness of them. Yeah, totally. The inhuman uh, weirdness of the these she creatures. She had a good sense of humor about it. The way that um, she frames each of her chapters. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed that. It reminded me of Mary Roach. I'd love to see more come out from Mara, sort of along the same lines as how Mary Roach has got this series of books over time. Yeah, she has a similar voice, uh, but but coming from. Uh, you know, more of a, a, a devoted uh, expert background because um, this, this is her uh, her area of expertise, and she really brings brings across a, a clear passion for ecological preservation. Uh, and it it's a, I would say it's a perfect scientific beach read for obvious reasons. You're going yeah. to the beach, no, the ocean's and in front of not you. better than the werewolf spot. <laughs> then you can not. go swimming around in the ocean and have all the various fluids of marine life spawning, <laughs> just flowing around over your body. Now this gives me an idea. Has anybody ever tried to create a were bone worm story? Mm. Hmm. Well, you know, it would be hard because you'd have to swim all the way to the bottom of the ocean mm-hmm. near a whale's carcass, right? And then be bitten by a bone worm. We so did? it starts like the abyss. Yeah. Well, yeah. but then I don't see how a, a but it bone, has to be worm, a werewolf bone worm would, I don't think, think see how they would be a threat to anybody. Like basically they'd be like, oh, well, Carl, he caught this bone worm illness and now he just, he, he keeps to himself a lot because he goes down to <laughs> whale carcasses. Well, remember we were talking about in that episode though about maybe it was just me, but but like how it would be great if you could use bone worms as like a weapon, like in Bioshock or something like that, and you just throw them at people and they immediately start <laughs> drilling through. So they yeah. could be like that. You could just you could just change into a, a, a were bone worm, hmm. but but a spy too. Okay. <laughs> Uh, the other book that I thought I'd mention, and this is another one that I've, I've definitely mentioned on the podcast before, uh, and, and that is uh, Chinese Mythology and Introduction by Anne Birrell. I found this to be just a, first of all, it's a, it has a, provides a, a great overview of mythology uh, as it's studied in general. So it, even if you're going into it without you know, a whole lot of religious studies in your past or you know mythological understanding, she provides just a great introduction to just what mythology is and how it works, and then a, then a wonderful overview about what's distinct about Chinese myth cycles uh, compared to the West, compared to uh, even other uh, Asian myth cycles. Um, and there's just a, a, also a cool arrangement of themes. So she she groups everything into, for instance, there'll be there's a section on. Um, on miraculous births, a section on heroes, a section on immortality, on strange creatures, etc. So I feel like the 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 information is just very well presented. Uh, you know, it's more of a a more of a scholarly textbook for sure uh, compared to, um, to 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 my uh, my previous recommendation. But if you were at all interested in Chinese culture, if you were at all interested in uh, in Eastern mythology, I think it's a great book to pick up. And I picked up a few different Chinese mythology text and found a few of them a little a little harder to engage with mm-hmm. uh, so uh, of those books I feel like this is the this is the, the best and this was a resource that I, I'm guessing that you turned to for a couple different things that we've done over the last few months right like the mythology episode that you and I did mm-hmm. you guys did an episode on the zodiac did it come into play there um, I picked up the book after the zodiac so I think okay. I actually sought this one out when I was working on that how stuff works now piece that about was, superheroes that was going to be the next thing I mentioned yeah, yeah. there was one particular story uh, from Chinese folklore concerning concerning the the seven to ten brothers however many you want to count 
and I was just determined to find a good scholarly resource on this. Yeah. Uh, as it turns out, it's not really dealt with in this book. Yeah. But I ended up acquiring it anyway. And uh, after I got it, uh, I realized, well, this is not really going to help me with this particular assignment. But then the more I started reading it, I realized it was just a, a fabulous text and couldn't put it back down. Cool. That sounds great. I hope we get more out of it, too. Down yeah, there. yeah. Yeah, there's tons of information in there. So if, if you guys want to hear, uh, uh, you know, anything else concerning mythology from us, if we have not filled our quota for myth-based right. uh, episodes, because we've had a, a couple of them, right? We've had yeah. uh, the the um, uh, the overall look at mythology, and then uh, Joe, didn't we just record one dealing with myth as well? Yeah, we did one with on uh, mythical creatures. Oh, uh, yes, of uh, course, geo mythology. Geo mythology. So yeah, we 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 have a, a couple of I feel like really strong myth-based episodes, and mythology, of course continually comes up in our episodes anyway. We don't bust myths here at Stuff to Blow Your Mind. <laughs> we embrace them. We build them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we're going to delve into our fiction picks for the year. Okay, so we're back. Guys, I have been talking about this book probably to you off air, but to pretty much everybody in my life for the last year. It is Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation. Uh, this is the first book in his trilogy of the Southern Reach story. Uh, have I have I uh, torn your ears apart yet? Oh yes, I I pushed hard for it to, to uh, for its inclusion in a book club that I'm in. Oh yeah, and um, it was uh, it was just I guess too sci-fi. This is. The stuff to blow your mind book. I'm telling you, like it's all like all the things we're going for with this podcast are in this book. Um, so if you don't know who Vandermeer is, he's a weird fiction, sci-fi horror author together with his wife. Anne. he's compiled a lot of just excellent anthologies as introductions to those genres that he writes within. Um, in fact, last year, his book, The Weird, was on my list, and I've probably talked about it on almost every single episode since then, because I just love that book. Um, and so you've probably heard me mention it a lot of times, but Annihilation is his book. It is a novel. Uh, and if you're a fan of what we do on the show, really, I, I can't recommend, you have to check it out. It combines weird science with this haunting prose and a great mystery. Uh, in fact, this is a description of the book, just the like, and I'm gonna just give you a bare bones summary because I don't wanna spoil anything. It describes a team of four people, they're four women, a biologist, an anthropologist, a psychologist, and a surveyor. And they are sent into an area known as Area X. And this area has been completely abandoned and cut off from the rest of civilization. All they know is that they're the 12th expedition to go into this area. All of the other expeditions have met uh, with disappearances of their members, suicides, aggressive cancers, or mental trauma when they get back. So pretty much everybody who goes there either dies or comes back and dies okay. or goes crazy. Um, it's narrated by the biologist, and it, as such, Vandermeer does this really good job of giving it an eye toward the field of biology and the character explores this weird setting and it makes use of the flora and the fauna both within the setting of the story in this area X, but also in the book's narrative. Uh, it's, it's just wonderful at that. I don't want to spoil it any more than that, but there's some, there's some weird stuff <laughs> in area X. Uh, Annalie Newitz gave a great review of it over at io9 and she referred to it as the tale of an ill-fated scientific expedition to a piece of coastline that has developed strange new physical properties that defy explanation, and it will make you believe in the power of science mysteries again. 
Uh, it is currently being adapted into a film by Alex Garland, who most people know uh, because he directed Ex Machina last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I know and, him from writing The Beach, which yes, I read in high school. Yeah, he's well, he's done a bunch of great stuff. Uh, Twenty Twenty Eight Days Later. Yeah. Um, I believe Judge Dredd. Judge well. Dredd. Mm-hmm. He wrote and uh, I don't I don't know if he directed Judge Dredd, but yeah. Alex Garland's great. So I'm psyched that he's making a movie version of this, and Natalie Portman and Oscar Isaac are both going to be in it. So I'm really looking forward to it. I don't want to say too much more about it, other than that it's the first part of a trilogy. There's two more books, and I I hear those are good, too. They're on my list. Awesome. Well, I am going to get into my fiction pick now, and it is also a science fiction book. In fact, I actually just finished reading this book this week. Earlier this week, uh, or a couple weeks ago, I guess, I didn't know what my fiction pick for this year was going to be, but now I know. Uh, I absolutely loved this book. It's called Aurora by Kim Stanley Robinson, and it's uh, it was published by Orbit in 2015, and it was just absolutely excellent. Powerful, smart, thrilling, deeply researched, uh, a very emotionally resonant, and a lot of fun. And I... Again, I have a similar problem with you. I don't want to spoil too much about the plot. Yeah. Uh, so I guess I'll keep my synopsis very brief. Uh, but the, the story begins on a generation starship. Robert, have you ever in the back been catalog? Been on a generation starship? Yes. yes. That's what, no, I mean, have you ever in, done an episode in the back catalog about, uh, like arc ships? Um, no, you know, it's one of those things that comes up, it has come up in passing before, but never a devoted episode. So that, that might be, love to do. Yeah, yeah, I think that'd be a good thing to focus an entire episode on someday. But it, generally the idea is, um, is that if you were planning on going to colonize an extrasolar star system in the galaxy, mm-hmm. the limits imposed by physics say that, well, okay, you can't actually travel faster than light or anything like that. So it's going to be a multi hundred year journey at the, at the very least. Um, so what's going to happen? What happens if you need to make a, you know, 300 year journey to a star system? Well, you basically have to take enough of earth biodiversity with you to, uh, to create a self-sustaining atmosphere and ecology on a ship. Um, and that's quite a challenge. I mean, we, we find, (laughs) we found significant challenges just creating, uh, uh, like the biospheres here on Earth. Yeah. Um, I mean, I believe in one of the episodes we've done, we talked about dirt, didn't we? About like the challenges of, like how much dirt you would need to bring. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, uh, I don't remember this, but yeah, that, I can imagine. That absolutely features into this novel. So it's, uh, the novel starts on this, this generation ship with multiple generations of passengers. Uh, I will say it starts into the journey. So all the characters are people who did not choose to embark on this journey. They were all, they were all born on the way, mm-hmm. uh, which is a strange position to imagine yourself in. Right. Uh, Cause you didn't sign up for this, right? The original generations and their descendants and their, their children and their grandchildren are all dead. Do they so, eat the dead? Uh, well, in a way uh, you have to recycle all biological matter within yeah. these systems. So sort of, I okay. mean, they don't directly cannibalize the flesh. No, but, yeah. But I was imagining that but like the, in a yes, situation their atoms, like their atoms and energy go back into the ship system. Nice. Uh, but so yeah, they're, they're bound for this extrasolar star system known as Tau Ceti. And I think I can safely say that this is the most deeply and thoroughly scientific science fiction book I have ever read. Uh, and I will say that because the plot is one of fundamentally it's a plot of scientific discovery and that m- most of the conflicts in the plot 
are not like, you know, your standard energy weapon battles, but they are scientific and engineering conflicts. It's okay. uh, uh, coming from smart people trying to struggle with the limitations imposed on them by physics, chemistry, and biology. And this is one of those books that I think I knew I was going to like it once I saw what the negative reviewers had to say. Do you ever have that experience? This book uh, got a lot of positive reviews, but yeah. when I saw what the negative reviews said, there's just a certain kind of negative review that makes sure. me know I'm going to love something. Sure. So I'm guessing this isn't something that the uh, sad puppies would vote for a Hugo on. No, I don't think so. Well, some people didn't like it, I think, because it had certain environmentalist themes. Okay. Mm. And then also, uh, I think some people found it boring because there wasn't enough like fighting and killing in it yeah exactly okay um but there but i i thought it was just absolutely wonderful i i fully wholly loved this book cool all right well uh for my fictional choice um i'm i'm definitely going to give you the cannibals that you wanted oh uh, thank you uh, selection i find myself i found myself in the, in the, the the first half of this year uh, not reading a lot that I ended up really loving. Yeah. Like I, I read, I read, I read some good books. I mean, I read uh, The Fixer by Bernard uh, Malamud, which is which is great, and it actually ties into some stuff I've written about for stuff to blow your mind, having to do with uh, uh, blood libel and um, pers- and Jewish uh, you know, persecution of the Jews. Uh, I also read The Neon Bible by John Kennedy Toole, which is about the, the most impressive thing you'll ever re- read by a 16-year-old. If you really want to, <laughs> wow. really want to depress yourself about your, uh, your, uh, your teenage writing abilities. Wait, yeah. 16-year-old? How old was he when he wrote Confederacy of Dunces? Oh, not to, what, um, was he older or he younger? Was, no, he was definitely older. Oh, I mean, okay. He didn't live tremendously long uh, since he uh, uh, killed himself. Yeah. But uh, this one came out after the Confederacy of Dunces uh, because it was one that uh, his mother uh, right. you know, had published. It was uh, well, written before then. Right, written okay. before. I mean, they both came out after his death. Uh, but it's a, uh, I mean, it's a very, it's a very advanced book for a 16-year-old. Um, and, and I enjoyed it. But I also, I didn't just absolutely love it. And it's hard to really... You know, pick a sciencey angle on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, really, the book that uh, engaged me the most this year was uh, a book uh, titled "Off Season" by Jack Ketchum. Um, and it wasn't it, it, it. It's kind of an infamous publication, and I wasn't even really going to mention it, but uh, because it's extremely graphic, it's an extremely nasty piece of 1980s horror fiction. And in fact, I think I edited out a mention of it on a previous show. Is that right? Uh, yeah. But, uh, but I figure, hey, it, it's the, the book that, that sucked me in the most, so I should probably mention it with the yeah. caveat that it is not for, for, for young people. It is not for anyone who's squeamish. It has a lot of, uh, a lot of extreme violence in it. Um, it is, uh, but it's a, it's a real page turner. It's exceptionally well written. You care about the characters and you hate, hate, hate all the debased villains, which are all, essentially it's about, some individuals on a vacation, so it's a great vacation read, obviously, mm, yeah. who are um, uh, attacked by marauding cannibals that live in the hills. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So and, it's like a Wes Craven movie turned into an Yeah, novel. it sounds like The Hills Have Eyes. Yeah, I, I'm, it's my understanding that The Hills Have Eyes was, was kind of a, an inspiration on it, like ah, that, okay. uh, that and a few other things. Um, but it's just, it's really well executed, especially after you get the initial character development stuff out of the way. Once thing, awful things start happening, it's just impossible to put it down. And uh, it, it, it's ultimately a book about normal folks 
who have to be who who are beset by bloodthirsty savages and then have to become bloodthirsty savages to survive and you find yourself becoming kind of a bloodthirsty savage reader as you cheer them on against these awful awful people huh uh so it's an, it's an extreme read um uh, but not to the point to where I ever felt like the author was just tormenting me or the characters yeah. just for the sake of all the suffering. Yeah. Because I've certainly encountered horror like that before where it just leaves me feeling a little gross. Yeah. Well, when you violence, pornography, they yeah. really thought of Eli Roth. Yeah. And that being said, there is still plenty of of bad stuff in here. So, okay. uh, again, I stress that this, this one is only for the, the dedicated horror fans out there. But... Um, it, it wouldn't be fair not to mention it since it, it was such a, a, a an engaging read, such an addictive read. Hey, so we need to take a quick break, but we will be right back with some more selections from our summer reading list. And we're back. Okay, so y- you guys know me, and I... I'm a comics fan, so I wouldn't be able to bring and do a summer reading list if I didn't at least mention a, a couple comics. Oh, yeah. Um, so I tried to narrow it down from my usual huge list to stuff that I think really resonates with our show and our listeners. And the first one that I have to recommend is called Junction True, and it's a graphic novel by Ray Fox, uh, and it's illustrated and watercolored by Vince Locke, and it's just Gorgeous watercolors, just really beautiful book, very, uh, you know, has very painterly quality to it. Uh, and it is about a near future where subculture involves transhumanist body hacking, which Ooh, yeah. is right up our alley, right? Uh, it's this weird, twisted love story about S&M, rebellion, alienation, and body modification, where the main character really has to ask himself how far he's willing to go for love. And by go, I mean modify his body for what his lover wants him to be. Uh, it is strange and kind of creepy and horrifying, but the characters just really feel real and... uh I, I just applauded it. Uh, Ray Fox is a very smart writer. He takes a lot of risks that pay off in his storytelling and in the theme. So I recommend this book uh, immensely. I believe it is put out by Top Shelf Productions. Hmm. Second one that I would recommend, and this will come as no surprise to people who have listened to me talk about things on the show before, uh, Warren Ellis has a new comic that's been out for the last year uh, together with Declan Shalvey and Jordi Belair called Injection. And... Uh, it really takes that old Arthur C. Clarke quote to heart. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Uh-huh. So you can't really tell is it, is there magic in this book or is it, you know, some kind of sci-fi technology that's just beyond our understanding? And he's not willing to hold your hand and let you know. Uh, if you haven't heard me babble about Warren Ellis on the show before, uh, last year I recommended his nonfiction book, Cunning Plans, uh, during our summer reading list. He's known for doing comics like Transmetropolitan, Global Frequency, Planetary, Freak Angels, and a lot of other superhero video game and TV work. I went back and read the first volume of Transmetropolitan this year on uh, your yeah. recommendation. Yeah. I really liked it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, huh? it was funny. Uh, I, I love it. It's been a long time since I've read it. But, yeah, uh, that's Spider that, Jerusalem, right? Yeah, Spider Jerusalem is, is his like sci-fi Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's fun. Uh, Injection is about a team that consists of a secret agent, a scientist, a hacker, a shaman, and a detective, and they. <laughs> 
make a mistake and they kind of think they're smarter than they are and they let something weird loose into the world. And subsequently, they're all traumatized by this experience, but they're also trying to make things right. Uh, it doesn't hold your hand with narrative structure. Ellis is definitely trying out some interesting like flashbacks, flash forwards, jumping from character to character, not really showing you all the pieces at once, but it comes together and it's, it's excellent. Uh, the artwork is stunning. This team is great. Declan Shalvey and Jordi Belair are a couple that work together. He does the illustration. She does the colors. And so it's just, you know, you can see that teamwork in the art. Uh, it really flows well together, and the storytelling is superb for comics. If you like stories that deal with the following things, this is for you. Madness, uh, weird incursions into reality, the history of magic, especially in the British Isles, and government conspiracies. Injection has all that and more. Now, are both of these that you've mentioned, are these complete things, or are they ongoing seasons? Injection series? is still ongoing. Junction okay. True is a complete work. Okay. That's cool. I uh, So I actually this year have been embarking on a project of going back and reading basically all the great like classic graphic novels that yeah. I've never read before. So I've been reading yeah. a lot of, uh, uh, as far as superheroes go, you know, the, the ones that everybody had read except for me. I read The Dark Knight Returns mm-hmm. for the first time this year, and... Uh, oh, some other Batman stuff. Have and you then, done Alan Moore Swamp Thing run yet? I haven't, but I oh, did read so by, concerning Alan Moore. I finally went and read From Hell, which oh, is another yeah. one along your lines, Robert, that I certainly wouldn't recommend for our younger listeners, uh, because it is extremely graphic in terms of sex and violence. Uh, but it's also a really, really well researched and interesting dark graphic novel. Yeah, it's, it's excellent. It's one of my favorite graphic novels of all time and, and it has been a huge influence on my own work in the field, yeah. And don't let the movies Indeed, scare you away yeah. from it. Yeah. <clears throat> but my next pick, uh, I had a couple more nonfiction books that I read this year that I wanted to mention because uh, I thought they were great. So another one uh, concerning science is a book about black holes, and it is called Black Hole, colon, How an Idea Abandoned by Newtonians, Hated by Einstein, and Gambled on by Hawking Became Loved by Marcia Bartuszek. Uh, 2015 Yale University Press. So I have to say points deducted for having a 16-word long subtitle. That yeah. is obnoxious. <laughs> very but academic. You think uh, it should be crunched down into yes, a very, into a very point small of space. infinite density and zero yeah. volume. Black hole colon spaghettification. <laughs> but uh, points deducted for that. Points awarded for everything else. I thought this is just a really superb and concise piece of science writing. Um, and, uh, so, uh, Marsha Bartuszek, I think she is a head of, uh, the head of a science writing program at MIT. Mm-hmm. And, uh, y- you can see why she has that post. She, she is a really, really top notch science communicator. And there's a very breezy, readable, compact style to this book. Uh, and so Bartuszek tells the story of our knowledge about black holes, how they're first theorized, how violently physicists opposed them, and how they eventually came to be accepted. And uh, Bartuszek is very true to the difficult astrophysics behind black holes, but she makes the concepts involved like really very easy to understand for non-scientists. I was, I, I'm, I'm not a physicist. I'm not even a very 
math-inclined person, but I was following her the whole way. Uh, and a lot of this is made possible simply by the way she narrativizes the subject. It's easier to understand the ideas she presents because she tells the story historically, where uh, she tells the story of each scientist interacting with the ideas of the other one. So you can see the logical progression of how people understood black holes. But one of the most interesting things about the book to me is how it shows this long, painful battle between our scientific theories and our common sense. So for about a 100 years now, any physicist who cared to look would be able to work out that black holes are a consequence of Einstein's general relativity. But scientists across the generations, just they allowed their common sense to rebel against the idea. It's like, wait, how can the mass of many stars be compressed down to infinite density? That's just absurd. That can't happen. Uh, there's even one story in the book, how about Sir Arthur Eddington, who was one of the most respected physicists of the time, just viciously mocked the then-young physicist uh, Subramanian Chandrasekhar after he gave a conference presentation in 1935 about the inevitability of black holes. Apparently, Eddington just got up after uh, Chandrasekhar had finished giving his talk, and he said, surely nature has some way of preventing this nonsense, more or less. Uh, and so, uh, of course, in the end, we learn through decades of painful back and forth that our common sense about black holes is completely wrong. And these objects do, in fact, exist. They're, they're not theoretical anymore. They're a fundamental part of our picture of the universe. Um, but they, every piece of common sense in our brain just rebels against it. It doesn't make any sense. How could there be something like that? Everything I know about black holes comes from the movie Interstellar. <laughs> when you go, when you go into, did you guys know when you go into them, you travel back in time? Hmm. See now, everything I know and about black holes your past comes from Disney's uh, the black hole. So oh, yeah. I know that when you go into them, you fuse with a robot and yeah, uh, robot. rule over hell. Oh, man. Was any of this stuff covered in the book? No, that's uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> You've seen the black hole, right? No, I haven't. You haven't? Oh, oh, wow. It's, yeah, uh, I should. I should yeah. In case anyone's misunderstanding me, the, the science is ridiculous. Yeah. In, uh, and I meant the same. Hole. I was being ironic about Interstellar <laughs> as well. Yeah, black hole is one of those like uh, super dark, Disney sci-fi fantasy movies that they did in like the late seventies. Yeah, like a robot like, disembowels Anthony yeah. Perkins in it. It's wonderful. It's, uh, what's what's the the Witch Mountain movie is part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, there's there's another one. Anyway, yeah. Oh, that sounds pretty there's good. A, there's a lot of crazy dark movies that came out of Disney yeah. around that time, and Black Hole was one of them. Pretty, I'll have to it's, check it's that out. Great. It's a go into it with uh, you know realistic expectations. It's a pretty fun ride, especially if you're ten. <laughs> Yeah, well, I will definitely be looking into that. I always wanted to know how I could summon the dark powers of uh, of, of infinite density yeah. to do my bidding. <laughs> uh, a, a couple other quick mentions, I guess, of, of books I read this year. One is uh, uh, The Confidence Game by Maria Konnikova, uh, Viking 2016. I, you got a copy of that, didn't you, Rob? Uh, yeah, I saw her speak at the World Science Festival mm-hmm. this year. She was on a panel that also included uh, Mary Roach uh, talking about uh, about science writing. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I was really impressed with everything she had to say. Um, and that's why I also shared an article about uh, that she wrote about whether or not uh, Trump, uh, Donald Trump, is a con man, a uh, con artist. And I shared that on our Facebook feed, and some people uh, did not like it, even though it was a. Uh, objective scientific approach yeah, yeah. look at what the Trump phenomenon is. Yeah. But I was really impressed with everything she had to, to say at the uh, the conference, and so I had to get, grab a copy of the book as well. I haven't uh, read it yet, but I'm looking forward to uh, 
uh, reading through it. Yeah, it's it's a good book. It's, so it's about con artists. It's about half historical narrative about some of the most interesting cons in history, and then the other half is science about psychological research on why humans are vulnerable to cons in general, and then particular tactics used by con artists and sort of the cognitive biases that they take mm-hmm. advantage of. Uh, and I, I think it would be fun to discuss this book for, for a whole episode of the show sometime, especially if we could get Konakova to come on and join us. Yeah, so. I've, I've touched base with her, uh, her agent. And so we would uh, definitely yeah. do that. Well, that'd be great. Yeah. Uh, I, I did find it interesting. But we have to inter- honor and we have to like <laughs> set it up as if we're going to do the show, but then don't actually call really, it. We just take all our money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause, uh, oh, did the audience not know that? We get paid. <laughs> To do interviews? <laughs> um, two things that she mentioned um, in, in her talk that I'm wondering, um, you know, uh, to what extent they're, they're in the book. She mentioned that she was inspired by David Mamet movies. Really? Uh, oh, in writing this book. I don't think No, she doesn't mention okay. that in the book. And she also mentioned that she was inspired by, like, it's, it's one thing we hear, we hear talk of con games and con artists. And it's easy to think, oh, well, that poor, stupid person. But, uh, but in her talk at the World Science Festival, she mentioned that, one of the things that really got her interested in this topic was that you have very smart people. Oh, yeah. Very, very intelligent people who end up getting sucked into these things. Yeah. yeah one of the stories in the book is about a, uh, a physicist, mm-hmm. a physicist, like working physicist, brilliant guy who gets conned by an Internet uh, person pretending to be, a, I think, like a Czech model who wants, catfished. who wants to marry him and they trick him into being a drug mule. Oh. Oh. Yeah. So you don't have to be dumb to fall for a con. Uh, they they exploit biases that are hey, that are there in all of us. Even even physicists like check models. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, then there's one last nonfiction book I want to mention, uh, and that is something I think it might have come out on an episode before, but it's uh, Our Mathematical Universe, My Quest for the Ultimate Nature of Reality by Max Tegmark. Oh, yeah. 20, 2014. Not, Robert, did you read this one? I didn't read it, but I, I've, I've read Tegmark's stuff before. He's always great. He's yeah. awesome. And I, I get the feeling that Tegmark is sort of a polarizing figure in the modern astrophysics and cosmology community. Uh, and I think this is because he does very important and relevant mainstream research, like he's not some crazy crank, but he's also not afraid to go out on a limb and explore radically strange hypotheses, like mm-hmm. the idea that uh, there's a physical way to quantify consciousness, if you think about consciousness as a state of matter, uh, or that the entire universe at bottom is made of math, not figuratively or metaphorically, but literally mm-hmm. We're not described by math. We are mathematical objects. Uh, and so I think some scientists and scientifically literate people don't like it when otherwise respected scientists stick their necks out and speculate about such weirdness, basically. Uh, but I, I guess they think that it causes some confusion about what science is. You hear people say this sometimes, right. like some people in the skeptic community. Uh, and with those people, I, I cannot agree because I, I think it's wonderful when productive mainstream scientists are also free to play at the edges of what can be known about the world as long as you're not confusing one type of intellectual exercise with the other. Uh, but ultimately, this book concerns the mathematical universe hypothesis, and it's also just a very good introduction to many other ideas in physics and cosmology today. One example is the multiverse. I, I like the way Tegmart Tegmark tackles this idea. So uh, the multiverse is the idea that other universes exist and they're causally disconnected from our own. So if you if you follow like the cosmological debates, you'll know that a lot of people don't like this idea either. And one reason is that if another universe is causally disconnected from us, 
there's no way you could design a test to see if it's really there. So what's the point in talking about whether it's there or not? The, by definition, there's no way to know. <laughs> and I think that could be a very valid criticism. But in this book, Tegmark uh, makes an interesting case. He tries to make a case for why the multiverse is not a hypothesis to be tested on its own, but instead it's a prediction or a consequence of theories for which we do have experimental evidence. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we have evidence that X theory is true. If X theory is true, you would expect there to be other universes. Um, so for that alone, I think this book is worth reading. Uh, and also be sure to check out some of the criticisms of Tegmark's ideas online. I remember at the time I read it, I came across a bunch of blog posts and reviews by other physicists who had a lot of disagreements with him. And they made interesting points as well. And, and you know, as a non-scientist, it's exciting to read a, a science book that's not just a presentation of established facts, but that's part of an ongoing debate where, you know, I, the ideas are not have not been settled yet. Okay, so Robert, I think you're going to close this out, right? And you're going to close this out with something for everybody. Uh, yeah, it was certainly for the, uh, the, the younger readers. We can't all read about uh, the science of black holes and uh, cannibal uh, destroyers, right? But what have we got here? Well, um, as uh, a lot of you know, I am the father of a four-year-old, so a lot of my reading these days involves reading books for a four-year-old and reading the same ones over and over and over again. <laughs> I imagine many of our listeners can relate. <laughs> I try and hide the ones I don't like to read, um, or certainly return them to the library. But uh, I thought I'd mention just three quick ones here that I that I find to be very good books that uh, my my son really engages with, um, and the, and they're able to to cover sciency topics. Okay. Uh, to, to varying degrees. The first one uh, is a book titled Octopus, uh, and this is by Evelyn Shaw with uh, illustrations by Ralph uh, Carpentier, and this came out in 1971. This is long out of print, but luckily with Amazon, it, it's so easy these days to yeah. get out of print books. You can pick up a copy of this hardback for like a, a dollar or two okay. online, and I think it's really worth it. Basically, it's um, it is the story of an octopus. Uh, with some wonderful kind of um, watercolor illustrations. But it's the story of an octopus from uh, basically her early life to her death. As she goes out, she finds a new home. She uh, at, at some point mates, so that kind of happens off camera. You're just told that that occurs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, she finds food, then she lays her eggs, and then she dies at the end. So it's the, the life cycle of an octopus. It's not it's not presented in any kind of a cutesy way. It's right. She's not like personified. Right. She's not talking. The penguins what, way. To tie into a previous discussion we've had on this show before, does she cannibalize other octopuses? No, but she gets in a fight with an octopus, for oh. sure. So, yeah, I'm not saying it's like a complete no-holds-barred look at an octopus's life, but it is a refreshingly realistic, refreshingly uh, naturalistic look at an animal. Uh, and uh, so I enjoy reading it, and my, my son is really into hearing it. Uh, and, it and it doesn't shy away from the fact that at the, at the end of the book she dies, that she she walls herself up in her little uh, cave and um, spends the last of her energy looking after her eggs, uh, which is, you know, kind of beautiful. Another one that he's really into is one called All About Scabs by Janichiro Yagyu. I would have loved that if I was a kid, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Because it's all about 
nasty scabs. What are they? What are they not? Getting um, them into that body horror early. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this is this one is great. This is a Cronenberg children's book. Yeah. That's a little bit. I mean, there's talk of in the book of do you eat scabs? Yeah, is I was okay? going to ask if the is, is yeah. a scab the is it poop? Is that what it is? Is the body pooping out the scab? If you um, eat scabs, do you get ancient power? Mm-hmm. The, yeah, depends on who whose scab you eat. <laughs> right, depends. Uh, a boy turns into a pig at one point. I'm going to go on the record and say that, that my scabs, when I was a kid, tasted great. <laughs> I don't know what was in them, but... And they gave you the strength of the Wendigo. Yes. <laughs> uh, another great thing about this one, and this is something that I think should resonate with uh, any parents out there who read books, is that uh, it, it, it has a couple of different levels of depth you can get into. Yeah. So there's some stuff later on in the book where you can really get more into what skin is and how skin heals. That's cool. And you can sort of read to whatever is appropriate uh, yeah. for your child's engagement. So uh, it's a great one. I believe this was this one is in the same book series as the Everybody Poops book. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm well familiar with that one. And finally, I have one. This one may seem like a strange choice, but it's The Berenstein Bears on the Moon by Stan and Jan Berenstein. This one came out, what, in 1985. Um, You're probably wondering, well, how spacey could this be? How how informative could this be about our solar system? This is what led uh, all those people to write the manifesto about the case against space. (laughs) Maybe. It's... uh, (laughs) For me, though, basically in this story, you have a couple of the the Berenstein Bears, and they go to the moon with their dog on a rocket. Okay. And that's about all that happens. They go there, and they come back. Yeah. But I found this to be pretty helpful in just explaining to my son what the moon is and where it is, because... You know, I want to share all this great stuff, all this wonderful information about the about the solar system and the universe and what what uh, the, of what's happening on other planets. But initially, I had to get over that hurdle of how do I explain to him what the moon is? Right. Uh, that it's far away. That it's there's such an abstract concept. Yeah. Yeah. That, that there's nobody on it. But yes, people have been there in the past, mm. but only a handful and only white men. And that um, includes two bears and their dog. And two bears and their dog. So it basically just does a, a it works as a nice illustrative um, adventure to say, hey, this is what the moon is and this is how it relates to the earth. Yeah, that's neat. Very surface level, but you got to start somewhere and I found this to be a good starting place. Now, is it the book that that movie Apollo 18 with the moon spiders was based on? <laughs> I didn't see that. Was it moon, is moon spiders the, uh, the enemy in that? I actually didn't see it either, but uh-huh. I watched the trailer several times because I found it funny. It's actually <laughs> a prequel to Transformers 3 Dark of the Moon. Ah. Uh, the Berenstein Bears find the Transformers buried on the moon. <laughs> All right. Well, that's those are the three that I have. Uh, I guess the best way to close it out here is if, if there there are any books that you're looking forward to, or you know, what's next on your plate that you're excited about. Well, I have a huge queue in my Kindle right now of weird horror literature that I picked up from reading that St. Joshi book. So uh, Brian Evanson is sort of a a newish, like last ten years horror writer that I'm really enjoying. I'm reading a book by him called. A Collapse of Horses. I'm going through Ramsey Campbell's back catalog. Um, those are the big ones that I can remember right now. Oh, we, we should, I, I should throw this out there. A friend of the show, Michael Weehunt. Yeah. Uh, has a collection of his stories out that are really good and it is called Greener Pastures. Yes, I, I read this as well. Um, I highly recommend anyone pick this up who's interested in, uh, contemporary horror fiction. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're, uh, two stories in there in particular, the, the title tale, Green Pastures, and then the first one. Uh, Onanen, is that it? 
it's the one with the the mountain and the the women. Uh, yeah. Anyway, the the first story. I it, it's one of those collections that kicks off on a really strong note, uh, really knocks it out of the park. Yeah. Uh, so this, is, this is a young horror writer at the top of his game. Go check it out. Yeah. Speaking of friends of the show, there's a comic that I'm excited about uh, yeah. that had just started up called Cryptocracy, and that's by our friend Van Jensen, who lives here in Atlanta. Yeah, and it's illustrated by Pete Woods. It's yeah. coming out from Dark Horse. It is really cool. I've yeah. read the first two issues, and uh, I believe Van at some point is going to be making an appearance uh, with the conspiracy guys on their podcast. Oh, I hope so. Because his book is all about... It's basically the, the the pitch is, what if every conspiracy theory was true? Yeah, and it, it's also from the point of view of the conspiracy perpetrators, yeah. not from the people yeah. who are trying to solve the mystery. It's fun. I like hmm. it a lot, yeah. Interesting. Okay, how about you, Joe? What are you looking forward to? What's what's the, the next big read for you? Uh, I think it's probably, well, actually, I already started it, so I know it. I don't know why I was <laughs> hedging like that. It's uh, the first novel in a trilogy, a science fiction trilogy by the Chinese author Liu Chekchen, uh, called the Three Body Problem. Oh, that's on my list this? as well. I have not read it yet. But. Yeah, I, I just started it, and so far it's very good. Uh, so I'm very excited to continue with it. Cool. Well, for my part, I am extremely excited that uh, uh, R. Scott Baker's The Great Ordeal, uh, book three of his Aspect Emperor trilogy, is coming out next month. Um, I've talked about this author in this series uh, a lot in the past. Uh, this is the, the dark fantasy series that has a tremendous amount of... Uh, uh, philosophy and even neuroscience in it. Um, yeah, I've so. heard nothing but good things about this series. I'm looking mm-hmm. forward to catching up on it. And oh, this reminds me of a book that you let me borrow uh, that I should mention on the show as well. Michael Shea. Oh yeah, uh, who we've talked about before because he, my all-time favorite horror story so far, is written by him, The Autopsy. Oh yeah. And when you heard that, you let me borrow a, a, a book of collection of his short fiction that the autopsy is within but then you also just let me borrow the nift series oh yes and so i'm getting into that as well is that niftaline that you mentioned Mm -hmm. in uh in in one episode we did recently uh yes probably something with bugs uh, because he's um or no maybe it had to do with giant bodies that's right yeah Yeah. giants because he's a colossal episode yeah because he's a very biologically or he was uh, sadly passed away a year or two ago but he was a, a very biologically literate Author and there was yeah. it all. There was always a lot of biological and body horror and creature horror, insect horror in his work. Yeah, it, his work goes all over the place, and it's the autopsy is definitely that. It's like alien body horror, but mm-hmm. uh, the Niftaline stuff is like if you're a fan of like sword and sorcery style kind of fantasy worlds, maybe Game of Thrones style stuff. Uh, this is that, but then incorporating all of this just absolutely weird aberrant. Uh, life forms and body horror. Yeah. Yeah, I believe he took a lot of inspiration early on from Jack Vance, yeah. his dying earth stories, and then really took it into this, uh, this weird direction all his own. All right, so there you have it. Uh, some of the, some examples of stuff that we have read, that we are reading, that we plan to read, and of course we would love to hear from Everyone out there, uh, what are we missing? What do we, what do we need to check out at all costs? What are your thoughts on some of the titles we've mentioned here? Yeah, we've got 12 more months before we do another summer reading, unless summer comes early next year. But uh, in the meantime, let us know the way to get in touch with us, social media. We are on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Tumblr. We're on Instagram. You can take pictures of your books, send them to us on Instagram, <laughs> put them on Tumblr, however. Or you could just write us a message. How do they do that? Well, of course, they can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. 
more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 